Well, on January the 2nd, Steph said this one sentence to me. And when she did, this thing just kind of wrote itself inside of me. So anyway, she said something that I had never thought about, about our culture. And she said, somehow we've created a society or a culture that cannot be corrected. Now, would you agree with that? Like, how easy is it to be corrected? And there's a lot of reasons for it, and it's not all of our faults. There's things that have happened that have created this kind of culture. So I was going to tell you something unusual about this group. We call it Cross Lines. And the thing about this group is that we had a meeting a few years back, and we put a big poster board on the wall, and we had all these guys in there that had been coming to hear us for years and years and years. They were part of our group, and they decided that they were going to write on the poster board what made us unique. I would watch them get up, and everybody said, what made Crosslines unique that's different than any other group? And one person wrote, correction. Like, we're not afraid of it. And so I'm throwing this out to you, and you can think on it, ponder on it, and see what the Lord puts in your heart on it. But the thing that I want to tell you is don't be afraid of it. Don't let it scare you. Just like, (gasps) I'm going to be corrected. You know, how about if I tell Gabby, Gabby, as soon as this is over, we're going to go in that room, and we're going to correct you. The whole Bible says she'd be going, thinking through, what did I do? What did I, you sit there and you're like, I can't give too much information away. Okay, what is it? But correction does a funny little thing to us and our society has gotten afraid of it almost to the point that they think it's evil. So I thought it was unusual that our group of people, like we're not afraid of it. So I want y'all thinking about this. If this is something that makes us unique or if this is something that all the kids go, we really like this about this group. I want you to relax, and you might as well enjoy something that everyone considers unique. Let's think about it for a minute. If our society can't be corrected, let's look into what that looks like. Is that healthy? You know, you can't call anybody out on anything. Oops. You know, and then the people that do call you out, they're crazy. Like, I'm like, where do they come up with this stuff? Like, what they consider right and wrong, you're like, oh, they must not have been in Sunday school as a kid. It's just terrible. They think things are wrong that aren't even wrong. Maybe they weren't raised in the country or on a farm. I don't know what's wrong with people, but I'm just like, this is unusual. So what I'm trying to get out of you is that ability of hating to be corrected. But I want you to think about it for a minute. What about correcting a king? Like if you were king and queen, do kings and queens get corrected? No, they never get corrected. Nobody tells royalty that they're wrong. Like nobody goes up against a king or a queen and tells them, hey, this is what you're doing wrong. You can't do that to a king. But guess what the Bible had? Prophets. And prophets spoke into power. Wouldn't it be unusual if we had politicians And that they became prophetic, where they spoke to power. But most people are yes people, or they do what everyone thinks, or they play the games, or they wet their finger and they put it up in the air and see which way public opinion's blowing. But they never have the guts to speak to power. Isn't it funny that God invented this thing called prophets that would speak to the highest person in the land, you'd think that the king would go off with your head. (laughs) I can't believe you would say that to me. 
You remember King David, he got corrected by a prophet. But you can't just leave the kings hanging out there. It's the fact that prophets also spoke to the people. Not to just royalty, not to just the leaders, but they also, prophets spoke to people. And so I was going to ask you, maybe we're missing that ideal of prophets, or at least the way the Bible looks at prophets, that somebody will risk their life, that they're not afraid that the messenger will be killed, and that they can actually speak to power. And you don't want to get to the point that you're too high and mighty that nobody can speak to you. That means that God can trust you, that he can put you in as much power and elevate you as high as you can be. You remember Abraham, I'll make your name great. When your name becomes great, are you still able to have the humility to be corrected? And it's best for us to think about it now rather than me trying to go to you when you're all that and a little more that I get a chance to correct you now. We're going to look at some theme verses. I'm going to read you all your verses at once. But the first thing is a Proverbs verse, and then the other two are out of the book of Hebrews. So we're going to let Hebrews and Proverbs speak to us. But Proverbs tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs 22:15. Isn't that hilarious? Did you know that every single person has a little bit of foolishness inside of them? I want you to think about yourself. Have you ever thought, I just had some foolishness in me? One guy said, it's like doing a little piece of stupid in life. And usually, you know, the Lord has to work you out of it. Sometimes you fall in love and that person helps you get rid of your little piece of stupid. But it says that every kid has a little piece of of stupid. Sometimes some have bigger pieces than others. Think about your brother. Think right now. And you go, like they had a piece of foolishness in them. So I want you to realize that no matter how cute the kid is, I didn't know we were going to have such a precious example tonight with all that cute curly hair. But no matter how cute that child is, as a parent, you've got to look for that foolishness in them. And it'll save that child a lot of heartache. And you know what? Some kids are so cute, you don't want to spank that little kid because he's cute. Now, the ugly kids spank them. But when they're cute, you just don't want to do it. Anyway, it's interesting for a parent to think, ah, there's something just a little bit wrong, and it's your job to help get rid of it. Now, sometimes people recruit me and say, you help me a little bit on them. Now, let me give you scripture number two. Now, this one's speaking to you. If you are without discipline... I want you to ask yourself, am I without discipline? Am I without correction? Of which we've all become partakers. That means nobody has not been to the banana room. That means nobody has missed out on discipline. We're all partakers. That is our way. That's the cross-line way to be a partaker of discipline. It says, if you're without it, though, and you're not a partaker then you're considered an illegitimate child and not a true son. Now, if you think that was fun reading it in the New American Standard verse, you ought to read what it says in the King James. If you want to see in Hebrews 12, verse 8, what it tells you, if you do not take part in discipline and you don't like correction, it makes you a blank in the King James. A strong language there. 
It means that you're truly a son if you accept correction. Because it goes on, it says, Furthermore, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Should we not now submit to the Father of spirits and live? Notice what it says. Our fathers disciplined us for a short time, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His goodness, in His holiness, in all that makes God wonderful, we become like in his perfectness. We share in it if we have discipline. So that's an unusual verse there that if you don't have discipline, you're not really a true son of the Lord. Think how many Christians just got X'd off the list. Every undisciplined Christian is not a true son. A child of God will have to have discipline or it makes him where he's illegitimate or King James worse. Yes. Part of the thing that makes you know that you're loved of the Lord is the fact that you are disciplined. Now, let me read you the answer to this. Hebrews 13, 17, the next chapter, it says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account for you. Okay, so, so far, that's kind of boring. You're like, oh, okay, you know, I can see my mother or dad trying to quote that thing to me, you know, or somebody trying to ram that down my throat. But I want you to notice the wisdom of the next sentence. Let them not do this with grief, but let them do it with joy. For it would be unprofitable to you if they have to do it out of, because you're making it hard on them. And I wrote myself a note. Note to self, self, make it easy on those who are accountable for me. Make it easy on those who really love my soul enough that they're going to give an account of how well they discipled me. I need to make it easy on them. Isn't that an unusual way to look at things? Who's ever thought of something? Now I've just shared with you my personal secret, that I have gone through life trying to make it easy on those people who were in charge of my discipline. Now, that's a whole nother way to look at it. If you want to be different than everyone else, you can make it easy. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm a pushover. It doesn't mean that I'm a conformist. That doesn't mean I do anything. I'm wild. I break boundaries. I go into other countries. I love the challenge of a no. I like impossible. But correction, I like it. It means that there's something real about me. It means you can trust me because I'm under discipline myself. I'm under correction. It means I've got a heart that's not rebellious. That means someone cared enough about me to beat some foolishness out of my backside. And because of that, I can help you. So those are your scriptures that they help you in what you're going to do. I'll read it to you out of the Amplify. Obey your spiritual leaders and submit to them, recognizing their authority over you. And I always say, I like authority over me. That means I have more layers of protection. If someone has authority over me, that means they're going to run interference for me. For they're keeping watch over your souls and continually guarding your spiritual welfare as those who will give an account or of their stewardship of you. Let them do this with joy and not with grief and groans. (laughs) For this would be of no benefit to you. I don't want someone to go, oh, oh my, oh, it's this one. It's the hardest one on my list. Your job is to make it easier for them because it's best for you. 
So we're going to start this concept of looking at correction so you're not so afraid of it. I was so shocked in all these years of doing college ministry that my college kids who had parents who did not discipline, did not at all tell them, hey, that's going to hurt you. They actually were very angry with their parents about it. I'll never forget standing right here, and one girl told me, you know, my mother knew what I was doing. She knew what I was doing wrong, but she never one time told me not to do it. And she says, I hate my mom to this day. You know, and there's that singer in the UK, and she was given complete freedom. Have you been reading about her? And she was allowed at 11, she started into all kinds of pornography. Well, first she said, well, you know, I would go over to my friend's house and they were told no. And she said at 11, she made so much fun of that friend. But as she's gotten older, she said, I'm so angry that I was never told no. She said, I became numb. And she started saying, it messed me up. I'm telling you from my perspective of having a thousand kids confess their souls and hearts to me in this room over here, I've been shocked how many people actually like the fact that they have correction in their life. And the ones that never were corrected felt like they were never really loved, like no one really cared. You know, we adopted a daughter, and she said, this is the best feeling to know someone cares when I come in at night. She said, I never had the feeling that anyone ever cared if I came home at night or not. And I thought, isn't that something that inside of you, you see it as somebody that cares for you? Someone that loves you. Now, it makes you mad when you're young and you want to do what you want to do. But when you get older, you're sad that nobody loved you enough to care. And that's a hard line. These are difficult things. But I wrote myself a note that for my college kids, now, you don't think this in junior high. You're not mature enough. Remember, your brain's jelly. But by the time you start hitting high school, no, you still don't think of them. Freshman year college, you st- no, you don't think it then. But somewhere in those college years, 18 to 23, 24, some of you 25, 26, you're trying to get out of college, you know, cramming, what is it, four years into six, you know, you're trying to get your college out of the way. But somewhere in there, you realize this discipline is good for me. I'll tell you another funny thing that I didn't realize. I thought everybody liked to come to a Tuesday night and... You know, I've been doing college ministry so long that, you know, everybody likes to come. And one time I was over at my house over here and they had 75 people in there and they had to remove this pulpit out of the room because there wasn't enough room to get my pulpit in there. And I had to stand and turn in a room and this guy goes, what does it do to your head to see 75 people standing here wanting to hear you speak? And I said, "Um, well... Think about the whole rest of the campus who doesn't want to. I said, that's what I'm concerned about. I'm not counting my 75. I'm looking at all those that don't want to come. Well, you know, so I kind of thought, well, people enjoy me. Until my mom, who was speaking for Wednesday night services at the church, she was gone for three Wednesday nights. So I went over there and I gave my same sermons Wednesday nights. Did you know what they started saying at the end of the service? They started going, we want Peggy Joyce back. We want Peggy Joyce back. They started chanting together. They wanted her back. I was like, this is terrible. And you know, the next day, this guy, he told me why. He goes, because you beat the sheep. 
<laughs> I thought that was the funniest thing I ever heard. I was like, I beat the sheep, and I was giving you my favorite lessons. And then I started realizing the reason is people don't like rough, tough truth. They don't like it. Church, they're so careful with you. They're so very careful because they don't want to lose their biggest giver. I don't take up an offering, so I don't have anything to worry about. If you go out, more will come in. The Lord will send them, so I don't worry about it. But I didn't realize then that people thought I was being hard on them. Why? Because church culture has become like society, like the world. They want it very comfortable. They put a lot of padding on your seat. They're making sure you're comfortable. And that was the first I realized when I was hearing the chanting, demanding my mother back after three weeks, that they did not want me anymore doing it like we did the college kids. And then when I go on retreats, one thing I've noticed I've had to do, I'm really funny when I'm on a retreat. You know why I'm funny? Because you've got to put humor with it. Or people do not take it. It's like a shock to their system when they're corrected. So you have to make them laugh, punch them in the face. Make them laugh, punch them in the face. Because people have to laugh. They have to think you're funny or you cannot get away with correcting them. They were laughing. Ann here told me I was speaking at a military camp and it was Methodist. And I didn't know it. So we were all laughing. And I had this whole camp of old people. And so the guys were rolling laughing because... And then I punch them in the face. And then they were laughing, and then I punch them in the face. And so anyway, we had a good time. But that's what it's like when people aren't used to this kind of correction. It's like the Bible says they, <coughs> they start choking on the meat. So I'm going to give you a word picture of what you look like. Without discipline or without correction, I want you to think of a very large ball. Like a very big, heavy ball. And you have to pick that ball up, this great, big, huge ball. Now think about this. You're at the bowling alley, and you get a ball. But there's no holes in the ball. There's no holes for your finger to fit in. How are you going to throw that ball? Well, you kind of can. Like, I mean, I've seen some of you bowl, and it looks like that. You're trying to kick it down there. Okay, what if you work for one of these companies that deliver packages and there's no inserts in the box and you have to lift the box? <laughs> yeah, so you're trying to hold the box while it doesn't slide. How about if there's no handles on something that you must lift? Like there's a door and you've got to open the door, but there's no handles to it. You know, that's what people look like to me that have no discipline, no correction. There aren't any holes... <laughs> They're very heavy, but there's no way for me to be able to lift them. There's no inserts for me to get a handle on them. Did you know discipline is so I can be able to handle you, move you, steer you? And you remind me, that's what I want you to tell yourself. If I don't like discipline, I'm like going to the bowling alley with one finger hole. Here I am. <laughs> That's about all the discipline I take is one finger hole. You know what? People tell me all the time they've got children, but they raise them with no correction. 
That's going to be like having a kid, one finger hole, trying to guide that kid through all the horrible things out there at school. Because we all notice every year the schools get a little worse than when we were there. I went back to the schools and I was like, you've got to be kidding. This reminds me of my prison ministry. I'm like, this is crazy. People aren't safe. I mean, we're doing drug deals right in front of everyone. You know why? Nobody has holes in their bowling balls. You've got to have handles on your kid. You've got to be able to say a no, and they know their life depends on it to save their life. Now let's move into something very sensitive, very painful, because a lot of what the Lord has to do, he has to heal you from your past before you can ever think about even thinking about what I'm telling you to think about. You have to get healed. And that's that I want you to evaluate the correction that you had in your life. What did you have as correction growing up? Did you have someone who loved you enough to throw a fit if you were about to wreck your life? Did the person who correct you correct you for your good? Or did they correct you for their good? And as you get older, sometimes the answers to this change. Sometimes when you get a teenager, you're like, uh-oh, I kind of understand what they were doing. Were you one of those that grew up with no correction? Did you ever grow up where they were abusive with you? Did your dad ever dress you down? My dad always told me, I'm going to get you and spank you when it's an attitude. And if I spank you when it's an attitude, you'll never do it as an action. And honestly, that's helped me a whole lot because I never had paid attention to my attitudes. So he didn't have a household of a girl not wanting to go along with what the family was doing. I didn't have a bad attitude. I didn't have a depressed attitude. I kept that smile on my face. And I thought of that verse where God watched the countenance. He watched the face. Did your parents live such a life that they could not correct you because they had lived such a wild life themselves or were living in sin themselves so they were like, I can't say anything to my kids because I'm doing it all wrong myself. Did they live a life where they took correction well so you respected it when they corrected you? Or were they just crazy? You know, Jesus said about the Pharisees, do as they say, but don't do as they do. And some of you, I'd have to say, do as your parents said, but don't do as they do. Some of you, I'd say, don't do what they said, because they didn't have the heart of the Lord on it. But let's just say you had good parents that tried. Let's say you had Christian parents. They're still not going to be perfect. So you're going to come into this, and you're going to have sensitive areas. You're going to have prideful areas where you go, nobody's ever going to do that to me again. And I'm going to say to you, with the most humility I can say, it really doesn't matter what happened to you in your past. You still need correction. And I'm saying that graciously to you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm just saying you're going to have to put your walls down and trust someone that loves you. Because no matter what happened in your past, you still need it. You know, I had a kid, and he was without mother or father. And he told me, I want eight children. I said, tell your girlfriend that before you marry her. And he said, I'm never going to spank those kids because I was abused. I can't tell you what it was like when this guy was saying, I'm going to have eight uncorrected. We were all like, don't live in the same city as we do. (laughs) You know, he's starting on his kids now. So even if you were abused you're going to still have to desire healthy correction. You're going to have to find that person you trust. 
More than that, you're going to have to find that person God's put into your life. Good correction, lots of it. Let me say the next one. Even if you're timid and insecure and not confident, you still got to be corrected. And I say that as graciously as I can because I've heard some of the pain. I've heard some of the horror stories. But it doesn't change the fact that you've got to have discipline in your life. You've got to have correction or you won't grow into what you need. And so you can't do to your kid and say, well, because I was raised wrong, I will never do that to my kid. You've got to look in the Bible and find a healthy way to help that kid get rid of their foolishness. One thing that we like to do in here is group correct. You know, whether they like it, they like it, and they keep coming back for more. My dad was like, this is shocking. If I had said what you said in the pulpit, everybody would have walked out. So he would make his rounds and go individually to everyone. And I was like, it's a lot more fun for everybody to walk out of here going, she aimed that whole thing at me. Yeah, it was aimed at you. And so everybody will come to me that night. It was aimed at me. I know they did it just for me. Yeah, it was. Because you never know. I mean, you're sitting there asking, why did this Gabby and her husband come this night? I mean, it's just like, what a night. And the little baby, he's getting corrected at a young age. I mean, he's already started young. You know, you're asking yourself, is it I, Lord? Is it me that messed up? You're looking at it saying, can I take this? Now, let me tell you what marriage is about. Getting married is saying yes to a person of telling them, I will allow you to correct me. Now, if you put it in those terms, that gives another whole meaning to it. Can you imagine saying that to someone? I'm allowing you to correct me. Why shouldn't it be the person that loves you the most? Evaluate him. Okay, so let's take a deep breath. I want you to say something to yourself. Everything that you feel and think is not necessarily right. Everything that you dream and it's not all the time right. All your desires and all your longings where it says dream, they're not always correct. Your motives and your attitude, that look on your face is not always the best. Sometimes you're fleshly. Sometimes you're soulish. I never forgot Gabby being in our first lesson. And I told her, what is body? What is soul? What is spirit? And she did a good job. And I thought, so the Lord brought her back to one on soulishness. But you know what? You think everything that you think is all Christian. You think all those things are Christian. Everything you feel, everything you dream, everything you think, everything you hear, everything you desire, everything you long for, everything you believe, all your attitudes, you think they're all Christian. And that's why we need each other. It's a big difference between feeling in the spirit and feeling in the soul and feeling in the flesh. And it takes a while to discern the difference. So this is what I was telling you about correction. If you love correction, you're going to grow up quicker and stronger and more mature. Now let me tell you what takes place. It takes you hostage if you don't allow yourself to be corrected, to not allow yourself to be corrected, 
you're taken hostage. Or you're being taken hostage if you're not allowed to correct someone else. So if you get in a relationship and no correction is allowed, you're taken hostage because you need it. And if you don't correct someone else, you are literally being taken hostage in that to not allow someone to correct you. You're making hostages out of each other. I've seen children not let their parents correct them that are teenagers. They've taken their parents hostage. If you do that to someone and you have someone that loves you and they're trying to correct you, you're making a big mess for your life. If you play a manipulation game with your parents and they honestly love you, you're taking them hostage. I'm talking in healthy situations. And if you don't allow someone to correct you, you're allowing yourself to be taken hostage. So pick wisely. You're picking the person you will allow to love and shape you and correct your wrongs. And that's with your friendships. That's with the one that you marry. That's when you have a baby. That you have to love them enough to correct that child at each stage. When you have a baby born, everybody's thinking, I wonder how I'm going to spoil this baby. And I'm saying you've got to start making a plan, a strategy. A lot of times men will do that. This is what I'm going to do to protect them at this age. You need that two-year-old. So if he's fixing across the street and you can't get to him and there's a car coming, you can scream, no, stop, and that child will stop. You've got to have handles on your bowling ball because <laughs> they're a little blob of flesh. And you've got to think, how can I teach them? If we do this to dogs, why not children? And if we do it to children, why not husbands and wives <laughs> and friends? So it's a problem if you're dating someone and you don't have the ability to tell them no. Kids can take people emotionally hostage. They can break you mentally. I have one lady that told me, I never tell my grandkids no. Or parents say, you can babysit the grandkids, but you're not allowed to say no to them. Mm. You can know already you fell with your kids. <laughs> or your son married a daughter that's messed up and he didn't choose well. This is one of the biggest areas of problems right here. I'm going to talk about other families, church families. There's a church right now. And they prided themselves. I mean, this church loves to pray for sick people. This church loves to see miracles. But guess what? They fail because all they would do in church is comfort. And it's not that comfort's wrong. The Holy Spirit's the comforter. But they would never correct. You know, over break, we were laughing at their email where they must have offended someone with one sentence they wrote. And everybody's screaming. And I'm like, that's a church that they never taught to enjoy correction. They never got up and said, I'm going to love you enough to tell you when you're wrong. So listen to this. Why the tree? Why the tree in the garden? You have to have a forbidden area, a no area. Call put it to me in these words. You've got to know that that person has a place of restraint. Like God's got to be able to tell you no, just like you've got to tell the child no. Does God have a place of restraint for you? Or do you not listen to his no's? So many people make a church, or let's call it a ministry garden, and they carefully plant a garden, but they put no tree in it that's forbidden. They don't allow 
ever there to be a no. In your garden, you have to have a tree of restraint, a tree of no, a tree where you can recognize God is telling me no there. You know, I'll feel the Holy Spirit say, uh-huh, or sometimes I'll hear him say, don't say that, don't do that, don't go there, don't, with your thoughts, don't. And I have that no, but I'm not a rigid person. It's not a legalistic life. It's a life full of love. And in a relationship, I'm challenging you to learn how restraints work for you and not against you. Because the mentality behind churches this day is they want to keep everyone out of conflict. Like a pastor panics if there's conflict. Every church discourages conflict. They have to keep the peace. And I've had people come up and they'd go, if there's any conflict in the church, I can't stand something that doesn't have peace to it. I'm leaving. We go, oh, if there's conflict, come on in. We're going to have some fun. And so we had a lady walk in the door. She was a visitor. So we all started saying, let's all yell at each other right when she walks in the door like we're having a big fight telling everybody off. Because most people, they just go, oh, no. I'm telling you, let's make peace with conflict. It's peaceful. God made it. Like sometimes the person I love the most is the one when after I've gotten through the conflict, we've worked to something where I'm like, that's truth. I'd never had seen it that way. Thank you for knocking that out of me. Pastors are the first person that need to take the word of God and help you see, oh, like I'll tell you where I have conflict with you. I want you to take risk. I want you to live a wild, exciting, adventuresome life with God. I don't want you to be a boring Christian. So I'm going to make conflict with you with everything in your life that's boring. You're going to find me making conflict because I truly believe serving God is fun. And so you make conflict with something. Like it's kind of fun to disagree. So we had a guy tell me, he said, you've got to come help me pastor. Help me with some problems in my church. It was one of my college guys I raised. He said, we have this one girl, and she said, if there's any conflict in this church, I'm going to leave it. So I thought, well, let's check into her. She must be a person that wasn't raised in church. Oh, no, she wasn't a pastor's kid. She's a missionary's kid. She was raised on the mission field. And so I started working with her, and I said, why are you that afraid of conflict? Like, if we cause conflict in this church, you're going to just get up and leave. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I felt like the Lord whispered to me and said, ask her what she does for a living. She does customer service for a large (laughs) department store, and she handles the complaints. And I go, why would you every single day do conflict for the world for your pocketbook, but not for God? She goes, I never thought of it that way. Okay. And it was that simple. She's still there today because she would do conflict for her pocketbook, but she wouldn't do it for the Lord. I'm going to tell you, you're going to be good at conflict. If you dread conflict... Did you know what? God will use you because you'll hear what to do. You need to not be failing at those times to do conflict. Now, part of the reason that we dislike conflict is we have some misconceptions. We all had four orphans that became a part of our group whom we all know and love. Now, it was like a giant house that had neither mother nor father full of home alone kids. I mean, what these boys could think of doing. I mean, Christmas, my mother gave them all Spider-Man pajamas. And you ought to have seen them all crawling around in their Spider-Man pajamas. I mean, they're hilarious. 
but let me tell you what they thought a father was. Oh, they wanted a father. That's all they could think of is, I wish I had a father, because A, he'll give me all the money I could want. Or I wish I had a father so I could play games all night long. I wish I had a father to give me everything I want. Now guess what happened? All my guys with fathers were telling them, no, you got to learn how to keep your money. You got to have a bank account. You got to have a check. You got to change the oil. You run your car. Why'd you do that? Change the tire. And they go, we don't like you. We don't like hearing all this. Why? All my guys that had fathers, they knew what to tell the guys without fathers. Because in their mind, they thought they had a genie for a father. They thought that father would be constantly encouraging them, giving them money, never saying no to them. And we started laughing because they had a fantasy father. They didn't have a real father. They had what they always thought other people had. People that have dads go, oh, no, my dad would have said no to that. Oh, no, my dad would have done this. Oh, my dad would have busted me for that. Oh, my dad. You know what? Guys that had real dads, they weren't perfect. And they would always make you do certain things. And that's what we found out is a lot of the fatherlessness is because we have fantasy ideas. And everyone that had a father that was pretty strict with you, they realized, uh-oh, there were definitely some no's because there has to be restraints. So if you're odious with rebellion, a lot of it is that we have too many of us raised without fathers or it was divorce. And a lot of times the fathers weren't at home. It wasn't a full-time father. And what you didn't get a chance to learn is authority. It's a delicate walk to have a strong hand to make it easy on those that have authority over you. Don't make it miserable for them. Partner with them when they correct you. It's not the fact that that authority figure won't do the conflict. It's just they get tired of doing conflict all the time. So you've got to make it easier. You know, I want you to think about handling the conflict. Both the mother and the father need to do conflict. Don't sit there and let one person do the conflict in the family. It makes a mess. Because you say, oh, they're better at conflict than me. I'll just let them handle it. They've got a personality for it. I'll be the good one. I'll be the good parent. I'll be the one that gives the kid everything they want. But I'll let that one do the conflict. You know when this happens? In divorces. You know when that's a mess? Because one parent lets the kid do anything they want. And the other one has to do all the conflict. And I'm telling you, when you're thinking about marriage, you are doing yourself an injustice and your child and your mate if you make them do the conflict because you don't have the guts to and you're a people pleaser and you want to be a friend to your kid and not a parent. So if you're in leadership here, You've got to help do the conflict. It's not right. And let me tell you, the kid doesn't profit if one person has to do it alone. It's double strength to the conflict. And it doesn't make it where it's all on one person. So with that parent, tell yourself, that child needs to hear conflict from me. You need to develop your style, your strength, 
the teamwork and the partnership and be willing to do the hard thing. You know, because if you think about it, for the most part, now this is very stereotyped, so don't panic if it was different in your family. And don't get mad at me. But for the most part, the moms, the way they do conflict is they try to civilize the kid. They try to teach the kid social graces. They try to teach the kid to be acceptable in society. But do you know why that's not bad? Because you want the kid to have influence. You don't want that kid to turn out to look like a heathen. But for the most part, the mother is trying to domesticate the kid, not the dad. You know how the dad knows the mom's trying to domesticate the kid? Because she's been trying to domesticate him. She's trying to tame him. I mean, that wild at heart was written because of the fact that men were like, we're being too domesticated, we're too civil, we're city-fied now. For the most part, women try to make their kids not look like little heathens. One of my crossliners left here, and they were telling me, your kid will take their fingers and put it in their mouth after each meal and lick each finger. And then when they're through, they'll take the napkin and use it for their hands. And they said, can you imagine eating in public with your kid as they put each finger in their mouth and lick it? You don't want that. It doesn't work. It doesn't give you any extra influence. So the mom is doing the best she can to raise you if she's having to do it alone. She's given it all she has. And I'll tell you what a mother brings to the table, and men will agree with this, intuition. A mom will have kind of an understanding or a knowing about something. Most of the time, this is kind of stereotype. But what the kid misses out on is the fact that what a father contributes. That a father imparts an understanding to the child and wisdom and direction and that ability to tell that kid to keep going no matter how bad it hurts. A father will usually be the one to make you take your risk. And usually the father will inflict the pain upon your posterior to keep you moving. You need both. And so a mom who doesn't let the father discipline, she's cheating the kid. And the dad who neglects the discipline and he just plays the fun games, he's cheating the kid of what he could contribute. It needs to be well thought out. And you need to both be taking an active role in cornering this kid that is trying to grow up without any holes in the bowling ball. So no accountability, never reading the correction scriptures. You've got to have correction inside of you where it's core correction. Because I noticed when I taught crucial conversation, you know what they were telling you to correct? Something that annoyed you. It made you just get the nerve so you could tell someone off for something that's been bothering you. You know what crucial conversations are? It's to get the passives mad enough so they'll go vent. And you know what? They create a mess because they let the things that matter the most in life go by. And they sit there and tell you, your breath stinks. You're in my way. They make it personal annoyances. And it has nothing to do with the will of God. Don't raise your kid that way. Don't let that be what you work your courage up to just tell somebody off you've been wanting to tell. Thank the Lord my dad never disciplined me that way. He disciplined me for things that still I hear in my head to this day. Him telling me what to do to make me successful in life. 
I'm challenging you, don't be petty and small-minded and narrow, and all you want to do is you're a passive. Sometimes I want to tell passives, just go back to not talking again because you're not saying anything of value and you're not speaking the Word of God. That's not what correction is. And if you do that, you're going to break them down mentally. And that's what the Bible says. Don't let your father provoke you to wrath and to anger. What you need to have correction for are things that are deal breakers and attitudes. Marriage. What you're saying when you get married is you're handing over to them the willingness to be corrected to them. You're handing that person and saying, I want you to correct me for the rest of my life. And I want you to be tender enough to know I love you to correct you. And that's what relationship's about. And that's what family's like. You know, the next thing is you need to go from just letting it happen to loving it when it happens. The Bible says to love correction. You remember those four children we got without mother nor father? When we were out here, we were loading them up for a mission trip. I've told you this, but one of them dropped his camera. Everybody was like, oops, and he used God's name in vain. You could see everybody kind of jump on him going, you can't do that. Like, I mean, we're going on a mission trip. If you're dropping GD bombs, it's not going to work real well, you know. I'll let you do some other bombs to grow out of it, but not God's name. And so I take him to the back of the bus, and I thought, poor kid, the rest of his life he's going to be corrected It's never going to get better for this guy. So I gave him that verse that I gave you. And I told him, will you love truth and love correction? And he'll say it to me. Every time he's corrected, I said, I want you to tell yourself, I love correction. When you're corrected, there's a difference between taking it, embracing yourself, and loving it. You've got to do something. Because if you don't love the correction, there's a difference between putting up with Angie and go, Da, 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 da. And you're doing that in your head while I'm talking to you so you don't have to hear what I'm saying. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, it's over. I can tell she's revving up to get me. Uh-huh. I can almost repeat what she's going to say. Let me tell you the difference between that and loving it. A lot of times if you don't love it, you won't understand what's being said to you because it's not the legalistic correction. It's the concept It's something that'll save your life at some point. It's something that'll make your future better. I don't like to have to correct you. I'd rather spoil you. Give me a reason to. Give me the ability to have a handle on you. Let me know that you're wanting God to speak into your life. Because a lot of times we don't have ears to hear and we get into selfishness or witchcraft if we don't love correction. So isn't this great to tell yourself, I'm going to love it. I'm willing to take it. Not criticism, but correction. Willing to take it. Let me give you a little phrase the Germans say. Germans tell you correcting others' mistakes is not criticism. It assumes that they want to learn and improve. You're just helping them along the road. Isn't that odd? They say if you go to Germany, the women will stop you on the street and correct you. And they'll tell you, you need to do this this way. You need to that. And they say this to themselves. Oh, they want to hear it. They want to know what they're doing wrong. That's the German way. They're swift to correct you. If Germans can create that culture, 
we can and not about petty stuff. So you make it easy and you come up with a plan of, I'm going to make it easy on those who have to have accountability for me. Now, I want you to think right now, who have you given the right to correct to? Who have you given that right to? Are they doing a good job with it? Are they correcting you for things that really matter in life? Are they just annoyed at you? Who do you let speak into your life? Do you make it easy? Do you not have anyone that can correct you? Do you not listen to anybody in life? Like there's not a soul on earth you'd listen to if they came to you. I always get really worried about my kids when they get themselves into a place where nobody can talk to them. I call it their teenage years. And you know what my dad told me? He told me, you're not going to go through rebellion. We're going to skip that. And I said, okay, Dad, we'll skip my rebellion. I'm not going to do it. Why? I made it easy for him. But tonight I was talking about one of my kids, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, they've hit that bad age. They're in their teenage rebellious age. And I've got to help them skip that because they're making some of the most important decisions of their life. When you decide who you're going to marry, what you're going to do, where you're going to live, these are your most important decisions. This is not the time to rebel and stop your ears up. So what's your reaction when you're corrected? I'd been working with this person, and the other day I was praying and praying and praying for him, crying out their name to God, praying, 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 and the Lord told me something about him, and I thought, no way, there's no way that happened. No way, no way. So I went to him, And that's what they told me. No way, that didn't happen. But I saw their face get pink right here. (laughs) And it puffed up. And they couldn't look me in the eye. And Steph goes, you're lying. Oh my gosh, they burst out. (laughs) That's how they handle correction. Put up a front, guard it. And you know why God told on them? Because he loves them. He's trying to protect them. It wasn't to hurt them. I wasn't going to hurt them. Like I told you, I've done 300,000 kids with rebellion. I'll just get another set and practice on them. I mean, I'm trying out different ideas, you know. Smoke screen. This is the best one. Point to someone else. They're doing it too. I write their name down too. <laughs> or blame. That's their fault. Defend yourself. Well, the reason... Blah, 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 and you defend yourself. Or go quiet. I just don't see you the next day after I correct you. You disappear, you go into the dark, you find the shade, or you're that type of, I'm going to see what I can get away with. If I keep enough pressure on you, you'll forget. You know what? You're not making it easy. You're making it trouble, and you're troubling your own house. You're tearing your own house down with your own hands. If you've got any other reaction I want you to read this verse, Proverbs 29.1. Stubborn people who repeatedly refuse to accept correction will suddenly be broken and they will never recover. You find yourself a path to receiving good correction. Even if that person doesn't do it 100% right, forgive them. Help them. Make them do it right. I used to help my dad punish me. Okay, I'll help you. Evaluate how you take your correction. People who can't take much, you know, somebody said, those darn charismatics, you can't ever correct them. They use their liberty to act independently. 
you've got to allow yourself to be coached. You know, I was working with one of y'all, and y'all were kind of kidding with me. They go, I don't like you two correcting me, referring to the obvious two. And they told me, I like Kyle. I didn't think Kyle was going to be here tonight. And they go, I like being coached by Kyle. And I said, of course you like being coached by Kyle. He's patient. He does all the giving. You do all the taking. It's a great relationship. But you know what's sad? Two members of their family were the same way. They can't be coached. And I was encouraging them. I said, won't you practice being coached by someone who yells at you? Because, you know, in college coaching, your coach will yell at you. And you're either going to get mad at your coach and make it be between you and your coach or make it be between you and your best game. So if you want to stay in kindergarten and be very careful, and I say it with the right words and have the right smile on my face, then it's one level of coaching. But if you want to grow, tell me, I want that college coaching. Give it to me your roughest. What kind of person would I be if I couldn't take hard coaching? Do you know where I would be? About six foot under. (laughs) They yell. Let me tell you why it's important. We're headed to days. It may come rough. If we should ever go to war in this country, our kids are going to get killed because they can't take correction. They can't take coaching. They'll all be Facebooking how hurt they are. Don't be one of those. Be the strength where you can take it in your core. I love correction. You don't want it to where we fall apart and somebody evil because I've traveled... I've been in so many difficult countries, and evil in the world is so much more evil than you would think. We live in a bubble here. We live in a good country, but the evil as it comes close, we're not ready for the kind of conflict that could come upon us. And in a crisis, you'll fall apart. Learn now. The book of Revelation talks about a rough time. Should we ever enter that, now is the time to tell yourself, I want to learn how to do this. Get a life coach where you're literally willing to receive it, where you don't get stuck because you're in danger if you can't get past this. Ask somebody, coach me tough. Be in my ear. Yell at me. Make me do it. Help me with my flesh. They're doing you a blessing to do that. Don't have anything stand between you and your game of success and winning. Because what happens is I evaluate how you take correction. If you're spoiled and you've always had things go right in your life, or if you're a victim, you can divide the group between those who take correction and love it and those who don't. Because it's all about one thing that men talk a lot about. It's called respect. What do men want? Respect. That's why Hebrews 12 says, Moreover, we had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. How much more God? It's respect. You have no one that you respect to correct you. It's dangerous for a woman to marry a man who is accountable to no one. I'm talking about really accountable. It's dangerous for a man to marry a woman who doesn't respect anyone. These are danger areas. 
People who don't respect authority. Society who doesn't respect authority. Church that doesn't respect authority. Hebrews, they disciplined you and you respected them. Because if you're in a church, I've got to have willingness to be corrected and willingness to do correction. Like if your church would never tell you you were wrong, then you're really not in a church. You're in a club. If you tell yourself, I want an easy coach, that's okay for three years. For three years, I'll let you enjoy the baby stage. You're cute. I clap for your poop. But after three years, I expect you to start wanting to be coached. Don't put yourself in a place that can't be corrected. Because the Holy Spirit, what He does is He gives us conviction. I've got to have willingness to be corrected and willingness to do correction when something isn't right. I'm going to end with this one guy in our college group. I didn't know what to think about this cross-line guy, but every time he messed up, he would bake me a pie and bring it to me. And I would see him coming, and he was started out on a bike here at Hired Payne, and he'd make me a tomato pie, of all things. And he would bring me this pie every time he messed up. The first time he did it, I didn't know what I thought. I ate so many tomato pies by this guy. And then eventually it was in his convertible he was bringing me a pie. And I thought it was funny because the guy made it pleasant for me. Well, I made it tough on him. And I thought, you know what? He has a principle. I'd see him pedaling his bike coming to me with his pie. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I know what he's done. And I thought, "Uh, you know, I got quite a few. And I thought, you know, a lot of ways it's kind of like this scripture. He was finding a way to make it easy on me. So I wouldn't dread seeing him come. And I'm telling you, you can have fun with this. Don't make this hard. Everybody makes Christianity so ridiculously hard and uptight and too churchy. And you ought to have fun with your Christianity. Do something crazy. You know, in the Bible, they're all kind of crazy and they do crazy things. So I'm inviting you. God is creative. He has a lot of fun. He's father to you. He completely loves you. Completely he loves you. And he loves you enough that he literally, he's for you for the rest of your life. But he loves you not to leave you the way you are. And your spouse will thank him. And sometimes when I see you get married, I go tell the spouse, you owe me a kiss for what I've been through to get them all fixed up. And so I I pointed to my cheek. I I need the audio to know. I pointed to my cheek. You owe me for what I've done. And so I'm challenging you. Don't be where you're so serious about your correction. Have some fun with it. Amen.